but there are from Genesis um, through um, Esther, there are 17 books, and we consider those the historical books of the Old Testament. And then from, um, from the Song of Solomon, which we actually from Isaiah to Malachi, these are the prophetic books. And there are 17 of those as well. So you've got 17 and 17, and then sandwiched in between are the five poetic books, Hebrew poetry. And these five books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. And we're going to look at those last two tonight. First, we're going to do um, Ecclesiastes. So open your Bibles there. And um, these two books, quite honestly, are... Um, Probably two of the least preached from books in the Old Testament, especially the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, and even Ecclesiastes, because it kind of comes to us in a a little different form, and we'll talk about that in, in just a few moments. But let me just give you a little bit of, of a little bit of background to this book, um, talking about the author, who is the likely author of the Song of Songs. Um, Traditionally, it has been Solomon. I think probably most of us uh, raised in church, our understanding is that probably Solomon was the author. Look at chapter 1 and verse 1. I'm going to show you just a couple of verses here that would certainly uh, lead us to believe that Solomon was the author. The words of the preacher, I'll talk about that term in just a moment, uh, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then if you will look over at uh, verse number 16 and 17, I commune, I commune with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness. And look at this next phrase. And I have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. A couple of things there. First of all, the obvious choice for the author based on verse 1 would be Solomon. He talks about being the king in Jerusalem, and he talks about being the son of David. Well, that every, everything about that points to Solomon being the one uh, who would fill that bill. But the problem is in verse 16, uh, this is at least where those who doubt um, Solomon as the author would point. In verse 16, you will note that he speaks about himself being greater than everyone before him. And, and in the Hebrew, he's speaking of other kings before him in Jerusalem. Well, the problem with that is there was only one king before him that was in Jerusalem. Saul was not in Jerusalem. The only king before him in Jerusalem would have been David. And so it's kind of a weak case. He really would be saying, I was more wise than my dad, is, is basically all he would be saying. So some have pointed to that and have said that uh, they doubt whether or not Solomon is the author. I tend still to lean there. There's really not any strong evidence um, opposite that other than verse 16. It doesn't matter, uh, but it's just one of those kind of introductory thoughts that, that people like to discuss. So the matter of authorship is unsettled. However, Solomon wrote it, um, the date of the, the writing would be around 930 B.C., so uh, not much short of a thousand years before Christ. 
Um, let me, the, the, the title to the book, um, Ecclesiastes, let me put this on the board, kind of interesting, at least um, I find it interesting. One of the, uh, the actual Hebrew word for Ecclesiastes is uh, Koheleth, and um, that's, that's the word that in Hebrew that is translated uh, Ecclesiastes. And the Hebrew word, the root of this is kahal, and um, this is the Hebrew word for to call out. So the koheleth would be one who called people out. Some of you will probably have even translations. In fact, I think I read it in the New King James, verse 1, the words of the preacher. And so the, the concept or the idea here is the Koheleth is the one who calls people together. And um, again, when I was taking Hebrew, this was one of the easy vocabulary words because it's actually pronounced kahal and it means call. So when I was trying, you always try to learn vocabulary with a picture. So that was an easy one. Um, but Ecclesiastes, the, the term Ecclesiastes... Um, can't talk and spell at the same time. Um, Ecclesiastes is the title that comes to us, and uh, that term literally, uh, anybody know what the church is called in the Greek? Anybody know that right off the top of your head? The Greek word for church, it is ekklesia, all right? Um, so when Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, he said, I will build my ecclesia. And it literally means the called out ones. And so Ecclesiastes, this is kind of just a little interesting thing. Ecclesiastes gets its name because it's the called out ones. The, the Koheleth is calling them to listen, almost like sitting at his feet, listening to his wisdom, that kind of thing. So um, that's just a little wordplay, but uh, gives you some insight uh, as to the title. Now, the theme of this, this is where, um, not the most exciting thing to teach on a Wednesday night, but the theme of, of uh, Ecclesiastes is meaningless, all right? Vanity, vanity, meaningless. You're really glad you came tonight, I can tell. 35 times the word vanity or meaningless appears in the book of Ecclesiastes. It almost seems depressing. Some have argued it's beneath the dignity of what ought to be in Scripture because it just has this kind of blasé, um, kind of everything is, everything's bad, nothing's good kind of sense to it. I want you to listen closely because really Ecclesiastes has some powerful truth if we'll hear it. The point of Ecclesiastes is that everything is meaningless apart from a relationship with God. Um, Paul said it in the New Testament, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If this is all there is, if there's nothing beyond here, then quite honestly, no matter how great the thrill is in the moment, it, it does not, uh, it does not, it pales in comparison to that which is eternal. One of the phrases also, and I didn't talk about this much this morning, um, one of the phrases that you will hear over and over in Ecclesiastes is everything is meaningless under the sun. Chuck Swindoll wrote a book probably 30 years ago called Living on the Ragged Edge, and it was about the book of Ecclesiastes, and he really drives 
this point home. But over and over, Solomon, we'll just say Solomon, assuming he wrote it, talks about the vanity of everything under the sun. And again, the implication is, if our life is only horizontal, if, if all there is is on a horizontal plane, at the end of the day, there's not much to really stake our life on. But if one ties into a relationship above the sun, into a vertical relationship with their creator, and that's how this book will end, there really is meaning, there really is purpose. And so what, what Solomon, if he is the author, appears to be doing is chronicling a life that tries to find satisfaction here, tries everything, and at the end of the day finds out nothing here under the sun really satisfies them. Nothing outside of a relationship with God ends up with anything other than a life that's void of meaning. The author describes an emptiness that is real when we seek to live a life without God at the, at the very center. And he warns of the absurdity of a life that is caught in the trap of pursuing happiness and meaning in empty pleasures that have no lasting value. Um, you think in the New Testament of Jesus talking about the rich fool who said, you know what, I've, I've expanded as much as I can. I filled all of my barns, so I'm going to have to build bigger barns. And that night, the angel of the Lord came to him and said, your soul is required of you. And he found that it was nothing, it meant nothing. This was meaningless under the sun. That's the underlying theme that we find all the way through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. There's no meaning apart from God. Look at chapter 2. There are some positive things, and, and we're going to talk about some of the proverbial statements here in just a moment as well. But there are some real positive statements, even in the midst of this kind of downer book. Um, there are some positive statements. Look at chapter 2 and verse 24. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. Now, notice this. This also I saw uh, was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. But I want you to notice verse 24, the last phrase. This also I saw was from the hand of God. One of the, this is kind of a, a powerful wisdom principle, um, and, and I think that, that we struggle with this sometimes. We so take for granted um, the little things, the, the moments of enjoyment, um, the time with our grandkids when they're giggling or they're learning to, to walk, or the time that, that we spend with those that we cherish, and we just kind of start taking them for granted and not recognizing, as this author says, even these things are a gift from God. And I think this calls us, and this is not deep spiritual insight, but it calls us to a life of, of gratefulness, of gratitude, of thankfulness, of not missing the small little blessings, not missing the moments that, that can pass by so easily, and recognizing that these two are a gift from God. And we ought to live lives of gratitude. We ought to live lives thankful for those moments that God gives us and recognize 
that every good and perfect gift, as James says, comes from the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning, and that we are to in everything give thanks. And so really this text calls us to recognizing even this, even the pleasure of work or the pleasure, you know, we we live in this world where everybody gripes about work and, oh man, Ecclesiastes calls us to be thankful for it, to be grateful for it, and um, to recognize the goodness and the gift that these things are to us. Look at um, chapter 3 and verse 13, chapter 3 and verse 13. Um, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all of his labor. Again, notice it is a gift of God. It's not because we deserved it. It's not because we earned it. It's because God in his grace has given it to us. And then look at chapter 5 and verse number 19. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is a gift from God. And so all of those texts uh, call us to, to really redeem um, even the under-the-sun living by recognizing even these unique gifts that we experience under the sun are indeed a gift of God's grace, and they are a gift of God. And then, of course, there's the classic text in chapter 3 and verse 11 Uh, that simply says he has made everything beautiful in his time. The New Testament counterpart to that would be Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. In other words, um, God has a way of transforming every experience of and make it beautiful. Now, it doesn't mean that he's going to make it beautiful in my timeline. Here in America, you know, we'll pray that God will make a tough experience beautiful in three weeks, but if he doesn't, we've just written him off and not able to make it beautiful. But this text says God makes everything beautiful, but what's the rest of it? In his time. He will, he will transform even the worst of experiences, even our, our pain and our disappointments. God has a way of transforming those and making those beautiful in his time. And we should live lives of gratitude. We should live lives where we recognize that even uh, those painful moments, uh, God is making them beautiful. I, I shared this uh, this morning. I'm, I'm teaching a class right now. It's an Old Testament class. And um, one of the things we were doing with the Pentateuch is um, students were, were talking about um, different different books and different themes in the, in the Pentateuch and how one of those themes might affect their life. And one of the students was talking about Genesis and the theme being promise and God's promise to Abraham and God's promise to Isaac. And, and he wrote just a really beautiful uh, forum discussion on how God always keeps his promises. And, and he was talking about um, his father being sick and they prayed for him and it didn't look good at all. In fact, they had, you know, they were really down and they thought it wasn't, the healing wasn't going to happen and the healing did. And then at the end of his, his post, he said, God is so good and God is so faithful, which is all true. It was a great testimony. Uh, but I inboxed him. And again, this is, I think, probably a 19 or 20 year old getting ready to go into ministry. And, and I reminded him, and this is something we don't do real well with, 
told him how good the post was first. I wasn't too harsh. But I also said, don't, don't think that if God doesn't work the way that you want him to work, that he's not good or that he's not faithful. We have, we've kind of closed God into if he does what I want and he answers my prayer in this moment, then praise God, he is good. So does that mean that if he doesn't answer our prayer and doesn't work the way we want him to, he's not good or he's not faithful? But the very essence, the very character of who God is, is God is good and God is faithful. And so here again, the author in the midst of this kind of depressing book is saying, God will make everything beautiful in his time. And we need to learn to trust that and walk in that. Let me just quickly walk through the book of Ecclesiastes. And again, this is a survey. We're not trying to, to um, cover all of the, the, the insights from Ecclesiastes, but uh, I want at least you to get a flavor of this. Um, actually, most scholars agree that the most difficult book in all of the Bible to outline is the book of Ecclesiastes, because there's really no, it's hard to even nail down a theme. So, this outline is just very arbitrary. It just gives us some hangers to kind of look at some things. But it, it begins by introducing the problem. Pretty simple. Chapter 1 and verse 1. Let me read the first several verses. The words of the preacher, uh, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Again, here we go. Vanity, vanity, says the preacher. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all of his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it arose. And the, the picture is the sun comes up in the morning and it makes its way over and then it rises. And then while we're sleeping, it hurries back over so that it can rise again the next morning. The picture is just cyclical. It just Life just is one big cycle. The wind goes toward the south and it turns toward the north. The wind whirls about constantly and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea isn't full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. Again, just this picture of a vicious cycle. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. This is kind of the mundane, uh, I'll never be satisfied with what I have. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new. We've all heard this. Under the sun comes right out of the Bible. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It's already been in ancient times before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after that. It is a real kind of pathetic picture about life. It's just one Vicious cycle, nothing new under the sun. And no matter what you do, when you're dead and gone, people won't remember what you did. That's, that's the attitude of someone who does not have a relationship with God. They're just living their life, and, and it, it is just kind of meaningless. Then we begin to kind of unpack the problem in several different venues, in several different ways. I'm just going to hit on a few of them. Go to chapter 1 and, and verse 17, and, and let me just show you, and this is another reason why a lot of people believe that this is Solomon who wrote it, because Solomon is really chronicling, if this is him, all the things that he tried to find to bring satisfaction, and none of them did. Verse 17 and 18, I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, but I perceive that this also is just grasping 
for the win. You see the picture there? You can't get it. You can't. It just, it's elusive. Um, so he said, I tried to basically get smarter. I tried wisdom, and it failed me. In chapter 2 and verse 2, I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth. What does it accomplish? In other words, I tried to, I just tried to have lots of pleasure and laugh all the time. Um, laugh my life away, but that too was meaningless. Verse 3, he tried wine or alcohol. I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their life. And at the end of this text, again, that did not satisfy either. Um, he tried works or building. This again points to Solomon as well. Look at verse 4. I made my works great. I built myself houses. I planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. So I, I tried building things. I tried architecture. I tried to have everything beautiful and amazing, but again, it left me empty. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 7 and 8, I acquired male and female servants. I had servants born in my house. I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. You flip over to chapter 5 and verse number 10. Um, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This is also vanity. They'll never, for somebody who is pursuing satisfaction and wealth, it'll never be enough. That's what uh, the author says. Chapter 2 and verse 8, we already read it, but he speaks of both male and female servants um, also in verse 10, he talks about pleasure. The Hebrew word there is sensual pleasure. So even his relationships. We know that Solomon had, what, uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines, and that he found was not satisfying either, all right? Um, I won't push that envelope any further, but he said that too was meaningless. Chapter 2 and verse 9 um, I became great, worldly fame. I excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my wisdom remained with me. And then in verse 10, he tried worldly pleasure. But without, without God, all of that stuff um, was meaningless. It was all vanity. So we go to chapter 3, and this is one of those kind of moments of... Uh, uh, insight that he has. And the, he kind of goes back and forth, and that's why it's hard to outline. He'll have these real depressing moments, and then uh, he seems to have some moments of insight. Chapter 3, uh, you're probably familiar with uh, verses 1 through uh, 8 about there's a time for everything. I won't read that to you. You've all heard that. You've seen that on plaques. Um, in verse 15, he writes, that which which is, has already been, and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. Um, this is a really important word of wisdom for us as well. The New Testament teaches that God will 
God expects us to redeem the time. God, uh, we will be judged for every idle word that we speak. Does that make anybody besides me a little bit nervous? It, it should. All of us will be judged for every idle word that we speak. We are, Ephesians 5, 16, we are to redeem the time. And so in this section dealing with time, he reminds us that um, God will require an account of what we have done and what is past. Chapter 4, and again, I'm just giving you a sampling of some of the subjects that are covered here. Chapter 4, he he looks around and he observes culture. He he observes society, and he sees what we even see today. Um, I returned and I considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power. It's the powerful that oppress. The ones in control often oppress. That's exactly what Solomon observed. They have no comfort. Therefore, um, I, th- this is a really kind of bleak outlook. I praise the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. In other words, in this awful under the sun, if this is it, if this is it, Solomon is saying, if it's only under the sun, it, it would almost be better not to have been around because there's nothing here that is lasting or meaningful. He talks about uh, worship in chapter 5. This is some really good advice. Um, This is, again, one of the moments of insight. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. What is the sacrifice of fools? Anybody? It's talking too much. That's what, that's what this is, especially in relationship to God. Look at verse 1 again. Walk prudently. Walk carefully when you go to the house of God. Draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know that they do evil. Don't be rash with your mouth. And let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity. Fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God, that it was an error, why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? Let me just kind of summarize this real quickly. This is not just talking about talking in general too much. This is talking about thinking that what we have to say to God is more important than what God has to say to us. Um, he's saying, be careful. Don't, um, I don't know about the rest of you, but I am much better at praying through a list of things than I am sitting quietly and listening to God speak to me. But The writer of Ecclesiastes says it's foolish to think that what we have to say to God is actually more important than what he has to say to us. So don't speak hastily. Don't make promises that we're not really willing to keep. All of these things are are good proverbial wisdom to, to be careful. I think this just speaks in general to the reverence to which with which we need to approach the presence of God. It is not something to be played with. Walk prudently. Um, be careful how you approach God. He's not, 
Thank God he is our friend, but he's not just our buddy. He is a holy, reverent God that we need to approach uh, with that kind of awe and reverence. Um, Then in chapter 7, let me just read a few more samples of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. A good name, verse 1, is better than precious ointment. Uh, That may mean that it is better to be well thought of than it is to smell good. I don't know if that's what that means exactly, but it is better to have a good name, to have a good reputation. No matter how you what you look like, um, what is your reputation? Um, the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. Again, this is a um, very under the sun kind of uh, approach. Better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and and the living will take it to heart. Again, look at verse three: sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. Let me just give you a little, little tidbit here. It's not, this is not a, um, a blanket statement that it's better to cry than it is to laugh. The point that he's making is, in those times of difficulty, our lives are shaped. Um, most generally, when everything's great, there's not that much transformation taking place. I'm usually being transformed when I'm going through a trial. Peter says that the trial of our faith is more precious than gold that perishes. So again, see, even that is a gift of God. God is transforming. God is uh, working in my life. Go to chapter 8. Not gonna, we're going to just hit a few more and then we're going to move on. Uh, chapter 8, and look at verse number 14. Chapter 8 and verse 14. There is vanity which occurs on earth that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. And I said that this is also vanity. You know what he's saying there? Same thing Jesus said in the New Testament. It rains on the just and the unjust alike. Everyone in this room has seen somebody that hasn't played by the rules be blessed, or it seems that they're blessed. And somebody else has seen somebody who's played by all the rules, and it doesn't seem like they are getting what they deserve. Keep in mind, believers live not under the sun. Under the sun, that's depressing. But believers believe in there is something beyond here that God is going to bring everything into account and that ultimately justice will come. It may not come here, but ultimately justice will come. That's the life of faith that says, even though those things happen under the sun, there is hope beyond that. Look at chapter 9 and um, verse number 2. All things come alike to all. One event happens, this is the same concept, one event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner he who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. So again, it's raining on the just and unjust alike. And if this is the only life we live under the sun, we are going to live our lives very depressed and discouraged and bitter and angry. Um, But when we understand that there is life beyond the sun, we can navigate that. Look at um, chapter 9 and verse number 13. Uh, 
Chapter 9, this is another good example. This wisdom I've also seen, 913 under the sun, and it seemed great to me. Uh, There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. And there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that same poor man. We've all seen that happen. Somebody that, that is not well known steps in and does something great, and there's no recognition. But again, under the sun, that will leave you depressed. But if you really believe that the greatest thing you can ever hear is well done, good and faithful servant, if you really believe that God is on the throne, if you really believe that God knows when you rise and when you sit, if you really believe that God is watching everything and ultimately will reward, then you can navigate those seeming injustices here, knowing that ultimately God will uh, bring those um, into correct measure. Let me just give you two or three more. Um, This one's kind of funny. Chapter 10 and verse 1. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment. I dare any of you to say that 10 times really fast. That's hard to say. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment. All right. Uh, what's the point there? You can have everything down, but but you can ruin it with with one act of folly, with one unwise choice. It's it's a call to living a life of of wisdom and caution. Um, verse twenty is also kind of funny. I, I just some of these I just picked out because they were kind of funny. Don't curse the king, even in your thought. Don't curse the rich even in your bedroom, for a bird of the air may carry your voice and a bird in flight may tell the matter. You know what that's saying? Be very careful what you say, even, yeah, exactly. Even if you think you can trust that person, I mean, most of us in this room have been bitten a time or two because we thought surely we can trust that person and we vent and before we know it, that little bird flies and um, tells what we said. So that's just good wisdom. It, what, when you say it, you better know. If it comes out of your mouth, you better know that it can, it can come back around. Let me, um, Ecclesiastes is full of uh, good proverbial wisdom and also uh, reminders that under the sun living doesn't satisfy. But let me bring this to a conclusion. Um, Go to chapter 11 and um, look at verse um, look at verse seven. Um, Truly the light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. If a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All the coming is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let not your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Um, Look at chapter 12 and look at verse 1. And um, remember now your Creator in the days of your youth. This is a text that... um, 
it wouldn't read real well to young people if it was just read this way. I'm not sure that most would get it. But, but the concepts here are serve God while you're young. Make the most of every opportunity now. And, and then let, let me read on. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. And the, year draw, the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Um, I've talked to people that became Christians when they were 70 or 75 years old, and, and they so wish they had given their younger years to serving God. They, they, wow, look what I missed. Look what I could have done. They're not physically able to do what they could have done if they would have been serving God with it when they were young. This is just a reminder that we should remember God when we still are able to. And then there are lots of metaphors here. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not turn after the rain. In a day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease, that's the teeth, uh, and because they are few. In other words, just a picture of age. When, when age hits you and things start going wrong, you're not able to do what you were once able to do. Or um, those that look through the window um, and those that look through the window, the windows grow dim. That would be about eyesight. When the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of the grinding is low. When one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of the music are brought low. This is just a reminder. Look at verse 6. Remember your creator. And here's really four. These are just kind of metaphors for death. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed. Or the golden bowl is broken. Or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Um, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Serve God now while you have an opportunity. Don't wait. That's After he's been through this whole mess, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, he says, let let me give you some advice. This is probably an older Solomon who's tried everything, and he's sitting and he's counseling somebody. He's saying, let me tell you, I tried it all and it didn't satisfy. Let me give you some good counsel. Serve God now while you still have a chance to serve him. And then the end of the matter is, is found in, in verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Uh, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Uh, let me let's put a little perspective on it, and then I'm going to hit the Song of Songs real quickly. Um, at the end of the day, Solomon says, yes, I saw injustice. I saw the poor man that saved the city, and nobody remembered him. Uh, I saw that bad things happened to good people, and good things happened to bad people. I saw people that had wealth that lost it. I, I saw sons steal their dad's inheritance. I saw all of that stuff. And if we only live here under the sun, it's vanity, it's meaningless. But at the end of the day, Solomon says, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, because actually this is not all there is. There is a God who sits on the throne, and at the end of time, he will judge every matter, even the secret stuff. He'll reward that guy that saved that city, that nobody ever patted him on the back, and nobody ever said great job, and his name never showed up in the church bulletin. God will reward him at the end of the day. So Solomon says, here's the bottom line. Fear God, obey God. Let God make everything beautiful in his time. Make sure that you're faithful, that you serve him, so that you can hear the New Testament uh, 
version would be so you can hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's, that's what can be extracted from Ecclesiastes. Um, any questions, any thoughts? I know it's not the most exciting book in the Bible. Um, Song of Songs, for some, may be the most exciting, and for some, it may not be. Um, any, any questions about Ecclesiastes? Anybody? Any insights, thoughts? All right, let's do the Song of Solomon, and then next week we will uh, tackle, begin looking at the major prophets and uh, give you just a real quick overview of those. We only have a few more weeks before we take break for the end of the year. Song of Solomon, um, let me, um, here's what the title looks like. Not that you care, but it's, it's Shur Hasharim. Notice Shur, and um, this is also the root, Shur. The word Shur in the Hebrew is, is song, all right? So anytime you see in Hebrew an I-M, it's plural, all right? So I know on your notes I put, I just did the transliteration, it's really Sir. Um, but this is how it looks in the real transliteration of the Hebrew. This would be song of songs. And um, it would be like king of kings, lord of lords, holy of holies. In other words, the best of the songs, okay? So that's that's important. And then I want to make sure I get this right too. Um, Shalomah, that's the Hebrew word for Solomon. And you'll notice, um, you see what's there? The root for Shalom. His name actually means the peaceful one. All right. So, and, and then this little suffix here is a preposition that can mean um, about, it can mean for. Um, so this, let me put it all together. So this is the song of all songs, the greatest of all songs, and it can either be about Solomon, for Solomon, by Solomon, dedicated to Solomon. All of those things are possibilities, and quite frankly, we are not sure. Uh, traditionally, people just said, and make it easy, Solomon wrote it. I'm going to suggest he didn't. I'll show you why. But... Um, any of these interpretations based on the Hebrew are possible. This is the song, the greatest song of all written by Solomon, or the greatest song of all written about Solomon, or the greatest song of all written for Solomon. All of those are possibilities, all right? I'll tell you what I think here in just a minute. So, who is the author? That depends on, really, how one interprets this. Traditionally, um, the author has been Solomon. The problem with that is, if you really read the book and you read it closely, you will find that Solomon is, is not really seen in that great of a light. Um, he is seen as a womanizer. Not, not a surprise. The guy had 700 wives, 300 concubines. He is seen as a womanizer who is trying to use his wealth and his fame to woo a young woman. It's almost like he's trying to get his 701st wife or his 301st concubine, but he is pursuing this woman and trying to woo her. Um, 
there are many, and, and, and this is becoming actually more and more, a more and more common belief, there are many that believe this was written by someone in the northern, uh, northern part of Israel. I don't want to do this whole history again, but I'll tell you real quickly, after Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam, um, his son Rehoboam reigned in the south, and then his arch enemy Jeroboam, that was not a son of Solomon, reigned in the north. The kingdom split after Solomon died. Anybody remember the big reason the kingdom split? Anybody know? Heavy taxation. That was the big issue. Um, Remember after Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, came to power, um, the, the people from the north came down and they said to Rehoboam, if you will cut back on your dad's taxes, we will, we will follow you gladly. And he said, I'll get, let me have a few days. I'm going to consult some people and find out what they say. So we got the elders together and the elders said, you need to cut back on the taxes because we can keep this unified kingdom, because Solomon, who reigned in Jerusalem, which was in the south, had taxed the north higher. They didn't like Solomon very well, because he had taxed the people in the north much higher. So um, Rehoboam asked the elders, they said, we really think you ought to back off the taxes, and they'll follow you. You can lead them anywhere you want if you'll just bring back the taxes. So he said, okay, thank you for your advice. And then he brought his friends, the guys that were probably, you know, his best buddies, maybe in his wedding or whatever. They were all young guys. They had, they had run around together. He said, what do you guys think? And they said, we think you ought to say to them, you think my daddy was bad. We're going to make taxes even tougher. And Rehoboam took the advice of his friends instead of the elders. And so when he told them, you think my dad was bad? I'm going to make taxes higher. They said, fine, we're not following you. And they went to the north and Jeroboam became their leader and the kingdom divided. All right. But prior to his death, Solomon's death, the north already hated him. They, they already, he was, he was a heavy, uh, heavy taxer. He had work camps. He made the north overdue or do way more than the south. So a lot of folks believe, especially because this has a slant that if you look closely, is kind of anti-Solomon. A lot of people believe that this was written by someone in the north. I happen to, to believe that as well. So if that's the case, the date uh, of writing, whether it was written by Solomon or about Solomon, it's probably going to be written somewhere in the 970 to 930 time period. Now, there, I, I list here six. I'm going to do these very quickly. Some of you heard this spiel before. But six different ways people have interpreted the Song of Solomon. First one I'm not going to give really any time to. That is a mythological um, interpretation. There is this um, really bizarre uh, cult um, that had some really odd worship practices mentioned in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. And some have tried to say that Song of Solomon has to do with uh, the worship to the goddess in this, um, in this cult. It's, it's a pretty far-fetched interpretation. Uh, we won't give that really any time. Secondly, some have said it's just a dramatic play, has six acts, two characters, and it was written as Hebrew poetry. It was written as a play. Thirdly, some believe it's just a collection of love poems that celebrate marital love. I want to spend a little time with number four. This has been a very popular interpretation of the Song of Solomon, and that is allegorical. Anybody ever heard of Watchman Nee? Anybody ever hear that name? Okay, wrote some great books. I actually have read lots of them. He wrote quite a commentary, 
not quite as in big, but very, uh, it was actually pretty thin. I guess it's a short book, but it has great detail. But the whole thing is based on an allegorical interpretation of the Song of Solomon. By allegory, I mean that Watchman Nee and many others, some of the church fathers, saw this as being a picture of Christ and the church, a love relationship between Christ and his church. We are called the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5 and also in Revelation. And so some have argued that this is really just a picture of the love of Christ for his church. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11. I didn't do this this morning, but we have a little bit more time. Look at 1 Kings 11, and uh, let me show you what it says about Solomon. 1 Kings 11 and look at verse 6. Solomon, 1 Kings eleven six. 6. Um, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Solomon built a high place for Kamash, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Melech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. He did likewise for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he didn't keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Here, here's my problem with um, the Song of Solomon being an allegory. The allegory would be Solomon and this woman and their love relationship as a picture of Christ and his church. I, I, I struggle with that because Solomon is in no way a model for divine love. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and because of the foreign wives, he did that which was evil in the sight of God. I struggle with that being um, a picture of Christ and his love for the church. This is just, um, maybe it's conjecture, but I think it's based on, on pretty good common sense. This interpretation uh, of the allegory was very popular in the early church and really very popular for many, many years. One of the reasons is because a lot of people struggled with a book in the Bible that was in the canon um, that had been embraced in the 66 books of the Bible. Many people struggled with it being a, a, a true story that that celebrates sexual love, and it does. I mean, the, 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 the Hebrew words here, we won't go into them, but there are some real sexual euphemisms that really talk about sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. And people really struggled with that being in the Bible and being considered part of Scripture. And so struggling with that, they decided we would be better to call this an allegory and say that it pictures Christ and his church. However, if you read Hebrews 13, it says marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled. God created us good and perfect and, and relationship, intimate relationship between a husband and wife is not evil. It's, the world has made it evil, but it's not. And so uh, over the last many years, people have, have recognized, uh, and I'm, it, this is not an interpretation that just emerged in the last few years, but more and more people are, are, are accepting the fact 
that an allegory probably is not the best interpretation of the Song of Songs. The next one is, is type, typological. And again, I don't want to bore you with details. There's a slight difference. Actually, there's a pretty big difference between allegory and typology. Let me explain. If I'm going to write an allegory, I'm going to sit down as an author and say, I'm going to write an untrue story that is an allegory about something else. All right? Typology is based on something that really happens, but it also has a picture of something else. I gave you this example a couple of weeks ago. Remember the story in Numbers when Israel lifted up the brass serpent in the wilderness and everybody that looked at it lived. Remember that? They were bitten by snakes, but when they looked, it really happened. So then Jesus in John chapter 3 says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. In other words, I have to be lifted up too. That's typology, but typology is not based on an untrue story. It's based on something that really happened, but also has a typological meaning. Allegory didn't happen. It's just a story, all right? So they are slightly different, and some have interpreted it as typology. Um, But again, we know that the, the brass serpent is typology because Jesus said so. Jesus said, just as, so I. There's nowhere in the New Testament that there is any affirmation given to the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs being any kind of type. That leaves us with the interpretation that that actually many now, I would say maybe even more than half have gone to, and that is the literal interpretation uh, that includes a picture of the beauty of marital love that is also talked about in Proverbs 30, 18, and 19. So let me give you the story Here's the storyline, I think, that appears in the Song of Songs. First of all, it is about a humble family from Shunem or Shulam, depending on your translation. And this family includes at least a daughter, a mother, and she has two brothers. The two brothers speak in chapter 8. They say, we have a young sister and we're going to guard, we're going to build a tower around her. We're not going to let anybody get to her. We're going to protect her until she is fully grown. And then if she still needs our help, we'll be there. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but the brothers are going to defend the honor of their sister. So there's a humble family um, that has the daughter, who is really the primary person in this story, a mother and brothers. She is pursued. Now, I want you to go to the Song of Songs. And we're going to show you a few verses. She is pursued by the king, King Solomon. Look at verse 9, chapter 1, Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, um, chapter 1 and verse 9. This is Solomon speaking to this woman. I have compared you, my love, to my horse. Yeah, to my filly. All right, how about that? To my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments your neck with chains of gold. He is, now, he obviously has lots of horses, and he's also seen Egypt's horses. So this is Solomon. He is pursuing this young, fair maiden from Shunem, and he is saying, wow, you are beautiful, and and you are as pretty as my horse. That is what he said, all right? So he is pursuing her. Now look at chapter 3, and look at verse 6. Um, 
Now the Shulamite woman says, Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all of the merchants' fragrant powders? Behold, it is, she answers it, it is Solomon's couch, with sixty valiant men around around it of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords. They're expert in war. Every man has a sword on his thigh because of the fear and the night. Okay, so she sees him coming. Now notice the the phrase in verse 6, like pillars of smoke. Um, Many people, there's a couple of interpretations here. It doesn't matter. Some think that on this chariot, they're burning incense, and so there's pillars of smoke. Some think because they're on a chariot, they're on a gravel, that there is dust flying. But as she sees him coming, it's clearly Solomon, and he is pursuing her. He wants to add her to his harem, all right? That's, we do know that much. Here's where I would suggest a somewhat different interpretation that I think fits the text much better. I believe she loves someone else. She doesn't love Solomon. She loves someone else who is a simple shepherd, and she wants to be with him. Look at chapter 1 and verse 7. She says, Tell me, O you whom I love, where do you feed your flock? Where Where do you make it rest at noon? For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? Do you think Solomon ever tended sheep? Not a chance. He's always on his chariot. He's got guys around him. He's got big money. He's got 700 wives and 300 concubines. This is not Solomon she's talking about. She's in love with a very simple shepherd. He's just, he's just, he's just a normal guy. That's who she loves. That's who she wants to be with. Look at chapter um, um, 2 and verse 8. Chapter 2 and verse 8. The voice of my beloved, she says. He, he comes leaping on the mountains, skipping on the hills. It's not Solomon. Solomon show up on a chariot. But this guy is just, he's a commoner. He's out in the wilderness. He's looking for my beloved. It's like a gazelle or a young stag. He stands behind her wall. He's looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. This is, the, the, there are intimate Hebrew euphemisms and all of that. But she is in love with, I believe, this shepherd. Now, here's one of the problems um, when you interpret Hebrew or you translate Hebrew. You can always tell when, a man is, when, it, when it's a text like this, where there's dialogue. You can always tell when the man is speaking and when the woman is speaking because the endings are different on the Hebrew words based on gender. That's real easy. That's how it's always been looked at. There's just two people, male and female. When it gets hard is when there possibly are two men because the endings look the same. All you know is it is a male. And so some have taken the easy road and just said, well, it's a male and a female. But again, I don't think Solomon fits the bill at all as being that shepherd that's skipping across the hills uh, going after her. Let me show you a couple of other texts. Solomon tries to woo her with his wealth, but she cannot be deterred. Look at chapter 7 and verse 10. Chapter 7 and verse 10. Um, She says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded. Look at um, 
chapter 8 in verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy is cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Look at verse 7. Um, Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. I think that fits exactly what she's saying. He's trying to buy me. He's trying to give me wealth to buy me. But that's not what buys love. I'm in love with this very simple shepherd who is tending his flock. And then look at verse 12 of chapter 8. I really like this. This is her again. And she is speaking to Solomon. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. In other words, Solomon, I've got my own vineyard. You've got, she even nailed the number, you may have a thousand, seven hundred wives, three hundred concubines. I don't know if that's why she said that, but she's saying, I'm not interested. You've got plenty, but I'm committed to one. She cannot be deterred. Um, let me just wrap this up very quickly. Royal enticement cannot sway her heart. Wealth and riches cannot buy her. Nothing can quench her love for the shepherd. Um, let me just, if that interpretation is correct, there are um, four or five implications. Number one, then we can see Song of Songs as a celebration of marital intimacy as a gift from God, as a good gift, like Hebrews 13, 4 says. It is selfless, and it focuses on, if you read back and forth, she cares for him, he cares for her. It's, it focuses on mutual care. Secondly, it is countercultural because it promotes sexual intimacy within the parameters set by God. That is heterosexual monogamy and covenant relationship. And so, again, it, it flies in the face of what our culture is saying. Thirdly, and I won't spend a lot of time here, but it attacks neo-paganism and Gnosticism. Gnosticism especially said that the body is evil and, and we um, only the spirit's good, the body is evil, and we shouldn't talk about it, and it's just all dirty and, and all sinful. But that's not the truth of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, God created man and woman. And what did he say when he got done? It is very good. Yes, it's marred by the curse, but the body is not evil. And it's not something that that we need to run from. It is something that God can redeem. And so this interpretation says intimacy between a man and a woman in the parameters that God has set is something that's beautiful, that God intended. It's not something that, that we should call evil. And fourthly, Um, it promotes to this generation a true devotion and a sexual integrity in the face of a sexualized and selfish culture that has perverted that which God has meant for beautiful. So where would Christ be in this book? Certainly his order is seen, his plan is seen, his purpose is seen, and his desire is seen as well. I'm not going to read you that last illustration. You can read that later. It's a really cool story. We don't want to Again, I don't believe it's an allegory, but we don't want to forget either that 
especially if we adopt the interpretation between the shepherd and the, the Shulamite woman. It's a beautiful picture of love. Um, I, I think we can see in that kind of relationship the kind of fidelity that we are to have to Christ and the kind of fidelity and faithfulness that he has to us. So that um, wraps up my quick little overview putting books. Any questions at all? Any comments? Anyone? Okay. All right. God bless you. We will uh, see you this weekend. All right. Thank you so much.